It's my joy to bring the guest sermon this morning, which I've entitled The Return of the King. And we look after last week when Tom exposited the death of Absalom, the defeat of his army. Now what we expect is that David, who has been driven into exile across the Jordan, must come back to Jerusalem. And so what would that be like? And how does he accomplish it? And I want to look at that this morning, but before I do, all of us who have been through this journey of the life of David, we remember how exciting it was when we saw that God took him from nothingness, from the sheepcoats. We watched him in his triumph over Goliath and how God lifted him up, gave him rest over all of his enemies, and made him king in Israel. And everybody agreed that David should rule. There was concord among the people. That's the word that's used politically when everybody agrees over who should rule. There are no factions. There was concord and peace in Israel. But then we saw his sin against the house of Uriah and the strife and the treachery and the murder that came after that. And David has come to a low place. And we've all experienced that this year as these texts have been very faithfully exposited for us. And so as I thought about this sermon, I wanted to anticipate what will happen actually in 1 Kings, just a few chapters from now, when we read about the account of David's death. And I wanted to think about that with you for a minute. What would that have been like? Instead of looking, we'll look at how David comes back to the earthly Jerusalem in a minute, but I want to consider... What was it like when he fell asleep in this world and awakened in the heavenly Jerusalem above? What would that be like for David? Because we're coming to the end of his story. And I think we've all anticipated, haven't we, what what will it be like when we cross that veil and see heaven? David, king, king of Israel, king of Judah, the man after God's own heart, is now in his reward. I would suspect one of the first faces he would see would be his father, Jesse, strong man of faith. Great man, Jesse, embrace his son. And then perhaps Samuel, the prophet, who had anointed him even as a boy, had seen his triumph over Goliath of Gath. Samuel, who spoke such wonderful things about David's ministry. And he would see all the mighty men of faith, Moses, Joshua, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And as he's receiving all of these, perhaps with tears of joy, if there can be tears in heaven, but certainly tears of joy, he lifts up his eyes and he's looking face to face with Uriah the Hittite. Good Uriah, the godly man converted from the Hittite people. Good Uriah, who was one of David's 37 faithful men. His name, he took his Hebrew name, and the Lord is my light. And he lived like that. He received circumcision. He married a Jewish bride. He fought in the armies of David. In fact, he was engaged in battle. 
against the enemies of the people of God when David took his wife, took her purity. And then to hide his sin, he schemed to murder good Uriah, the man whose name meant the light, the Lord is my light, his house would be extinguished in Israel, for he had no blood kin. That's what David did. What would that meeting, can you imagine, how would that play out in heaven when David sees and he's face to face with Uriah? Can that scene take place in heaven? How would that be? Well, I want to come back to that at the end of my sermon. I want to say, I want to suggest to you how I think that meeting might have taken place. But before I do, I want to look at the text for this morning, found in 2 Samuel chapter 19. And I want to begin in verse 9. The story of the return of the king, and that means something historically to us. It's as old as Oedipus of the Greeks. Shakespeare wrote about it in Hamlet. Robin Hood was set during a time when there had been a good king, Richard the Lionheart. But he goes off to crusade, and his wicked uh, relative, John, brother, takes the throne. Wicked King John. It's the story of Robin Hood. The people are oppressed, waiting for the good king, Richard the Lionheart, to come back. When the king returns, don't you see, he sets everything right. He makes everything that has been wrong to go away. He reconciles the people. That's what you expect with the return of the king. Tolkien understood that. The third volume of his great trilogy is the return of the king. The king who will come and make everything right. And so we read today an account of the return of the king. David is coming back to Jerusalem, city of David, and back to his throne. But what we see is a man who is so broken, he is unable. He doesn't have the wisdom. He doesn't have the understanding to make all things right. And so he fails us. But in failing, he makes us look for another king who will come with the wisdom and understanding to be able to reconcile all things to himself. So let's look at David. Let's look at the account of him. He's still across the Jordan where he had fled from the revolt of his son. Absalom has been defeated. 20,000 in Israel have died. My goodness, what a day. And Absalom himself has been killed. David is across the Jordan and he must come back. And all the people, verse 9, were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king, David, delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. Absalom, whom Israel had followed. Remember, Absalom had won the hearts of Israel, the northern tribes, away from David. And so they had endorsed his rebellion and had joined, but now Absalom has been defeated and killed. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. 
Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? They're quarreling among themselves. We really ought, they say, to bring David back. He is the one who has right and title to the throne. So some, half of the northern tribes, say, let's bring David back. And they send embassies to him across the Jordan and say, we want to welcome you back to the throne. But not all of them. And King David sent his message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests who were in Jerusalem, Say to the elders of Judah, the southern tribe, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? The northern tribes have already invited me back, but I've heard nothing from my own tribe, from Judah. Why are you the last to invite me home? When the word of all Israel has come to the king, You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. He flatters his own people using the language that the northern tribes had used when they had espoused themselves to him as their king. They had said, we are your bone and your flesh. But now he says that uniquely about Judah and not about Israel. He sends embassies not to Israel, but to Judah. He is not really reconciling these two quarreling camps in Israel. Why should you be the last to bring back the king? So he reproves them. And then say to Amasa, Are you not bone of bone, my bone and my flesh? God do more so to me, and also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. So Joab, who is a mixed character for sure, but Joab had led him to victory against Amasa and the tribes of Israel and the army of Absalom. And so he deposes his own commander and puts the man who had been general against him in power as the commander in the field. Why is he doing this? He's creating more resentments. 20,000 are dead in the field, and all he can do is mourn for this wicked son. He's not acting the part. And so Joab had reproved him. And for his efforts, Joab is now deposed. Joab is no longer commander, but Amasa is. And Joab will nurse that wounded pride. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So all of Judah rallies to David. And they sent word to the king, Return, both you and your servants, come back. Take the throne, it's yours. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king, and to bring the king over the Jordan. So he's being welcomed home. Now he will have two encounters with men from Benjamin. See, Benjamin is the tribe in the middle between Israel and Judah. It's like the border states. If you remember in the Civil War, will these states go with, remain with the Union or will they go with the Confederacy? These border states are critical. Benjamin is critical also because it's on the border of Jerusalem. Benjamin, of course, had been to the house of Saul. And there was a quarrel in Benjamin. Should not Saul be reconstituted after David has failed so miserably? So two men from Benjamin come, and how will David treat them? Shemai and Mephibosheth. And this is where we see David and the limits of his wisdom. So Shimei, the son of Girah, the Benjamite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. 
He comes with intelligence. He comes with those that are most loyal to David from Judah, although he is from Benjamin. This Shimei, perhaps you remember his story. He hated David. And when Absalom was driving David out of the city, Shimei followed him along the path and hurled curses at David, threw dust, threw rocks publicly, cursing him, saying that because he was of the house of Saul of Benjamin, now David had gotten his just deserts. David, who had dispossessed Saul, now was himself being dispossessed, and Shimei endorsed that and cursed God's anointed. An incredibly wicked man, vile. And they wanted to kill him then. Could have. But David said no. In his own weakness, he said, perhaps God is cursing me through him. He's not thinking correctly. So he lets him live. But now the tide of battle has turned. Absalom has been deposed. And David is returning. Now Shimei, of course, remembers that he had publicly cursed David. So he must reconcile as quickly as he can with David. So he goes with with Judah, and he takes with him a thousand men from Benjamin. That's a small tribe, so that's an enormous number. He's telegraphing to David, I am very influential in this tribe. You need to reconcile with me so that I can secure this tribe and its loyalty to the house of David. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, this vile servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king and crossed the ford to bring over to the king's household and to do his pleasure. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, so he prostrates himself, humbles himself before David. And he says to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty. Remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem? Forget all about that. The constant cursing publicly, the rocks being hurled in contempt, forget all of that. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant, that is me, knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph. That is, he's identifying with Israel. I'm a key not just to Benjamin, David. I'm a key to Israel. Because Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. I've come down to meet my lord, the king. So Abishai, the son of Zeruah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And that's the issue, isn't it? This man, this wicked man, deserves to die. But David had had forborne to kill him before when he had opportunity. Now what will he do? David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be this day as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Or do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. But not even David has power over Shimei's life anymore. That was incredibly, utterly foolish for the king to do. 
to take this man's representations as truth and to forget all that he had done against God's anointed. And we know the outcome of the story. Did Shimei? Was he loyal to the house of David? The answer to that is no. But David was bound by his oath, and there was nothing he could do. And this wicked man continued in Israel. And on his deathbed, David tells Solomon, You are wise, unlike me, in the way that I dealt with Shimei. After my death, when my oath is no longer valid, bring Shimei down to Sheol with blood. My goodness, there you are. He's coming home. David is. It's the return of the king. But he is not reconciling the people in truth and justice to the throne. His folly, his judgment is all wrong. And it will be treachery in the instruction that he will give to his son, Solomon, by which he will deal at last with this wicked Shimei. Now another one comes from Benjamin, Mephibosheth. And you remember him, his story. He's the son of Jonathan, good Jonathan. But he was crippled in his feet. And he couldn't move easily. And when David flees from Jerusalem... Mephibosheth has to make plans because he can't flee in haste. He is disabled. He has to make plans to do so. And his servant, Ziba, takes advantage of his master's disability and makes his way to David and said, By the way, Mephibosheth, my master, is glad that you're being driven out of Jerusalem because he's saying, Well, now the throne can come to me because I'm the rightful heir of Saul. Totally misrepresenting this godly Mephibosheth, to David. So David, without talking to Mephibosheth, without thinking any of this, of this through, dispossesses Mephibosheth of all of the property of his father, Saul, and gives it to Ziba, just as Ziba had planned. All of his property is given to Ziba, pointed to him. And Mephibosheth is dispossessed, and David thinks that he's turned traitor to the house of David. But Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day he came back in safety. What does that tell you? What should have that have told David, had he been judging correctly? He sees this man. He's taken no thought, no care for himself, his appearance. Had he intended to win the hearts of the people away from David, would he not have kept him, his appearance upright? Would he not have dressed the part of a king? But he was dressing as one who is in mourning, who gives no thought to his personal appearance. So he appears before David, and it's evident he's given no care for his personal appearance from the day that David was driven out. He authentically loves the king and it should have been evident to David in the way that he presented himself. So David says to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he gives a good answer. He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, Ziba. 
For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He pleads his disability. Ziba has slandered me, your servant to the Lord, to my, to the Lord my king. But my Lord the king is like the messenger of God. You do, David, whatever seems right to you. He says, for all my father's house, we were but men doomed to death before the Lord my king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. You showed me such grace for my father Jonathan's sake. You do whatever seems right in your sight. What further right do I have then to cry to the king? And David said to him, Why speak to me any more of your affairs? I've already decided. You and Ziba divide the property. David can't make up his mind. He's given it all to Ziba, but now he takes it back and divides it in two and gives half to Ziba and half to Mephibosheth. Don't talk to me any more about your affairs, he says. You and Ziba shall divide the land. But then Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take it all. It is enough for me, David, that you have come safely home. So what has David done? David has committed a great injustice. Because you have two men, Mephibosheth and Ziba, one of them is lying. One of them is a treacherous man. And David has simply, not wanting to be bothered with this anymore, divided the property and given half, which means he's given half to one who is a liar. However you decide it. This is not justice. This is not justice in Israel. In Israel, in Deuteronomy, you're commanded, the elders of the people are to examine until they see the heart, even if it's hidden. They see the heart and know the truth, and then all of the property should have been given to one or the other. But David doesn't want to be bothered, and he plays the role of the unjust king, divides it in half. Mephibosheth hears that judgment. He says, give it all to Ziba. It's enough for me that you have returned. Now you should hear in that, Something that will remind you of another king, Solomon, David's son. It's a scene that will happen after this. When God gives Solomon wisdom, in order to show that his wisdom was divine, and that is the great mark of a king, is his wisdom, his ability to judge correctly and do justice. Two women appear in front of Solomon. Both of them are harlots. So neither one can be trusted. There are no witnesses. She said, she said, the child, the living child is mine. You remember the account. Solomon says, take the child and divide him in half, never intending to do so, because he knows that would be injustice. Divide the child in half in order to discern the heart. And the true heart of the true mother is discerned by what? She says, oh no, please don't do such a thing. 
let her have the child. The one who is willing to give it all away is the one who speaks truth. But David does not have the wisdom to see that. The return of this king, this king David who is so damaged in his soul, so compromised by his own sin, he is unable to see these things. The return of this king is not a triumphant one. So the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? So Israel is jealous now of Judah because they know David is of Judah. Is he now going to reign in favor of Judah, show favoritism to his own people and not to the ten northern tribes of Israel? So there's factions emerging. There is no concord. Half of Israel doesn't even go to welcome David. They don't want his kingdom anymore. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at the king's expense? Has he given us any gift? There's resentment in that. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king. There are ten of us northern tribes. There's only Judah and Simeon in the south. There are ten of us. We should have ten parts of David's heart. But you want to have all of David's heart. So there is jealousy between the tribes. And that will be papered over for a few short years. During the remaining days of David, during the reign of Solomon. But as soon as Solomon is dead and Rehoboam reigns, these simmering resentments will break the kingdom in two and destroy the United Kingdom. David doesn't have the wisdom to reconcile. He can't do it. The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and as David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were not we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? The words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. That is, they did not bring unity. And David reigns over a people who are in factions and quarreling. And he doesn't have the moral integrity or the wisdom of the king to know how to bring the kingdom together. Now, David is a great man, but like us, he's flawed. He fails. Amos, the prophet, will say his tabernacle fell, but his tabernacle will be raised in his greater son. How is that done? How is it that Jesus restores all that we lost in David? And I think we're given a clue in Matthew and his genealogy. Jesus is working all things to reconcile all things to himself. And that work was going on for centuries and millennia. And it still goes on today. 
When Matthew writes the royal register of Jesus, he's giving us the catalog, the pedigree of the king. He's showing us Jesus by right and title is the royal heir of David and should be recognized as Israel's Messiah. And he tells us this noble lineage of our Lord, his royal genealogy, all of the lions of Judah are here, culminating in Christ. Abraham, he tells us, was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. What a registry is that? And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and by Tamar? Tamar? Matthew, why do you mention her in this royal genealogy? You remember Tamar, don't you? She was a Canaanite woman. She was married to Judah's firstborn son. And it was her right to be the mother of the heir of the royal line of Israel, to be one of the mothers of Christ. But her husband, the heir of Judah, was so wicked, God killed him. So Tamar is bereft of a seed of hope. She has the right to be the mother of Judah's heir, but she has no ability. But in Israel, you do not want a line to die out. That's not right. There must be a continuation of the line. And so they had what they call the Leveret Law, where the brother of the deceased husband would go in to impregnate the wife and raise up the son in the name of his deceased brother, that the line would not perish in Israel. The Leveret Law. And so Judah sends his second son into Tamar, and Tamar is humiliated. Do you remember that story? He will take her, he will treat her like a whore, but he will not raise up a seed to her. But her faith is so strong, she will abide in her widowhood after God kills Onan too, waiting for Judah to keep his word, which Judah has no intention of doing. He defrauds this great woman of faith, who somehow, through all of the wickedness of this family, believes this family is the hope of the world, and that it's her right to be the mother of the Lord. And so the only way that she can accomplish her privilege to be the mother of Judah's son, she thinks, is to play the role of a harlot. This is a holy mother in Israel. So she dresses like a whore and sits by the road, knowing the character of her father-in-law. And God gives her conception by that illicit relationship. And she bears twins. And one of them is Paris, who is one of the fathers of Jesus. And so she achieves her hope to be one of the mothers of the seed of the world of the woman that will redeem the world. That's Tamar. That's her story. And so she is honored in Israel. Kings named their daughter after Tamar. David had named his precious and beautiful daughter Tamar after her. 
And what happened to Tamar? Remember, is she just left his wreckage by the road? Remember we read about her and how Amnon had taken her purity and then in contempt had barred her from his door? And she went off mourning in Israel, tearing her robe of many colors. What was the rest of her story? Is there no justice for her? It seems to me that there is justice in remembering the one after whom she has been named, because God took the humiliation of this first Tamar and blessed the world with Christ. Could he not do the same with David's daughter? Can he not redeem that story that seems to have no redemption within the horizons of our own life as we see it? Are there wounds that we have, some of you perhaps, that you think can never be healed in this life? Maybe so. So how do you live? You live in confidence that it will be worked out somewhere in Christ, who reconciles all things to himself. There will be justice, and there can be mercy as well. And so you can live in the hope of everything that Christ can restore. So Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, Rahab? Matthew, you've done it again. Why do you mention Rahab in a registry of kings? This woman was the whore of Jericho. She was a Canaanite. Noah had cursed the Canaanites. Moses condemned them to death for their wickedness and their idolatry. She's cursed by Noah, condemned by Moses. Her very lifestyle is an offense to the holiness of the God of Israel. But God had given this woman faith. He'd given her faith. And faith and the covenant breaks away the curse and the condemnation of the law. And this godly woman is grafted into Israel and marries Salmon, who's in the royal line of Judah, so that she becomes one of the mothers of Jesus. My goodness. Jesus, God, is working all things to reconcile to himself and in himself. Jesus is descended from a Canaanite woman. Are there any racial curses or barriers? He brings them to himself. Curses are broken off. Condemnation of the law taken away. My goodness, everything is being reconciled in Jesus. We're going, we're coming now in the genealogy closer to Jesus, the one who brings all this together. Rahab, her son is Boaz. What a triumphant man of faith. What a seed is given to this woman. The goodly Boaz who marries Ruth the Moabitess. Here he goes again. Don't you remember Moab? The Lot, Lot and his daughters and the incest in the cave. It's awful. But Ruth is descended from that sin and yet 
she marries goodly Boaz. And they become the parents of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. My goodness. What a reconciliation is that? Moab descended from Lot. Boaz descended from Abraham. You remember so many years before, the family of faith was Abraham and Lot, and a quarrel had broken them apart in their unity, and they had been divided, the quarrel between the herdsmen. But when Boaz takes Ruth, Boaz of Abraham and Ruth of Lot, and they come together in marital union, God has healed that ancient quarrel. That ancient quarrel that was 800 years old. My goodness. God doesn't think in our time frame but he thinks at the right time and in the right way. His time frame is different. We say in this life, how long, O Lord? We want to see justice in our lifetime. How long, O Lord? But the Lord knows the right time. And we have to surrender time to him. Is he insensible? Does he delay because he doesn't know our pain? Tamar knew the humiliation Sexual humiliation, is there anything worse than that? Doesn't God know? Doesn't he hear? Doesn't he answer? Is he impassively not moved by our suffering? Let me suggest that no one knows suffering like Jesus. He knows when you can't take it anymore because he took it. You remember his story too, don't you? When he was charged with being the king of the Jews, and Pilate turned him over to a cohort of soldiers, 400 soldiers, so that they could sport with him all night. These were the wickedest soldiers in all the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to be assigned to Judea. They were demonic in their wickedness, mean, vicious. So 400 of them come to collect Jesus, to sport with him. Here is the king of the Jews, gentlemen. So they make a crown of thorns. They give him a broken reed. And they strip him. Clothe him in scarlet. This is hard to say, but some of you need to hear this. You men who live among men, you know, you can imagine what these vicious men did to our precious, holy, undefiled Lord that night. No, he knows. He knows just how deep that pain can go. He knows all of those wounds that you think cannot heal. And he is working to reconcile all things to himself at just the right time. David can't even bring Israel and Judah together, but Jesus 
brings Canaan into Israel and Rahab and Moab into Israel and Ruth and Ammon into Israel and Rehoboam. He brings all of the nations to himself. All of the Gentiles are reconciled, not just Israel and Judah, but all of us are reconciled to him in his precious cross. And we wait in faith for the return of our king. And he is surely coming with righteousness and justice and mercy. So how did David meet the good Uriah? I have no doubt that Uriah, having seen the sun of glory, recognized that God was at work in this story. You see, Uriah was cut off without a line, wasn't he? He had no kinsman. He was a convert from the nations. He had no brother to raise up a son to carry on his name. So his family name, Uriah, the Lord is my light, David extinguished that light. And he had no one to carry on his name. There is no one in Israel who can be the leveret brother-in-law to Uriah. No one can raise up his name except one. There is only one who has a federal relationship with Uriah. In all of Israel, there is only one who could raise up Uriah's name, and that's David the king who has a covenantal relationship to Uriah. And after his repentance, recorded in Psalm 51, David goes into her who had been the wife of Uriah and Solomon is the son of David according to the flesh, but also the son of Uriah according to the Leveret Law. And Uriah, his name, appears in the genealogy of Jesus, that that name might never be extinguished in Israel. The Lord is my light. How in the world? What kind of wisdom is this that presents to us the hope of a heaven where Uriah can see David with tears of joy as they together celebrate a heavenly reconciliation in Jesus, their Son, our Savior, who heals all of our disabilities, who reconciles all of our alienations, 
who breaks away all of our curses, who takes away all of our condemnation and truly does reconcile all things to himself. That, it seems to me, is how heaven brings together Uriah and David. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of our precious Lord, for his patience, his goodness, his grace, his magnificence, and we long for the return of our true King, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He comes with righteousness. He comes with justice. And he comes with mercy to make all of us one. We celebrate him who is all our hope. For in him, our hope in God is never extinguished. For the Lord, as good Uriah taught us, is our light. Amen.